So, let's be honest, if we play word association, which we're not going to for a couple of reasons, uh, the main one being a few minutes. So if I shout out a word and I was to ask you the word over the same line over here, that's not going to be So, uh, but if we were to play word association and I were to uh, say, uh, look, I doubt that the first word that come to your mind would be obedience. Unless you've got it. And then it probably would. Um, or your team, I suppose. But probably not all that many of it. Now, if I were to say, I don't know, something that isn't burdensome, I really doubt that everyone in the room would shout out obedience. Because obedience to us is burdensome. Which is why when we hear this passage uh, and, and, and we listen to it, maybe for the first time, it sounds a lot like religious propaganda, right? Because ever since Nietzsche did his thing on the European continent, you and I have been conditioned to believe that when you hear someone say, obey God, what they really mean is obey me. We see obedience as a tool of control. And so we become very skeptical of that. And so when someone says, hey, your obedience isn't burdensome, what we can't hear is, uh, you shouldn't have a hard time doing exactly what I tell you. Which is understandable. And at the same time, when it, if we're not familiar with Christianity, or you know, it's new to us in some way, then the notion of obeying God just seems like, isn't that what religion is all about? You obey God, you get what you want. Uh, you, you do things for him, you get really good graces. You do things for him, he does things for you. Isn't that the way this whole works? It's like a cosmic quid pro quo. This passage, though, I think it's sort of both of those ideas, because it does it, places the notion of obedience in its proper place. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at that in two ways. Um, and if, if you're a note taker, there's an outline in your bulletin. If you're not, you can read it. Don't worry about that. Um, but we're going to look at this passage in two ways this morning. We're going to look at the grounded nature of obedience, and then secondly, the character and power of obedience. Okay? The grounded nature and the character and power. All right? Yeah. Uh, let, let's get started. There is probably a really clever way to buy it. What I do is I just tend to follow the line of thought of the dude who wrote it and hope we get there. So let's, let's do that, okay? He says this, uh, beginning of verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ and is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, whatsoever that is, born of him. Now, on the surface of it, that verse doesn't seem to have anything to do with obedience. We get that in the middle of it, it has to do with obedience, but what does that have to do with it, right? Um, what we're going to need to understand, though, is that John is starting a line of thought. He's starting a string of logic. But, but grammar is important, especially in this. 
Okay, follow me. Everyone who believes, that's what the term says, right? Believe, that Jesus is the Christ has been. As in something that happened way back here and continues into the present. Has been born of God. Okay, what does that mean? This is a really big deal. Listen close. Because the Bible argues that all humanity, all of us, every single one of us, from the smallest to the oldest, is broken. Uh, alienated from God, that our, by nature our, our relationship with Him is fractured, and that we are now um, uh, independent of Him. And if you've been coming here any amount of time, you're probably sick of that word independence. But, but we talk about it a lot because I want us to understand what this brokenness, this, this word sin in the Bible is and what's not. Okay? And in the Bible, sin is fundamentally about being independent of God. Independent feels very differently depending on whether or not, uh, depending on kind of what you tend to value in the world. Here's what I mean. Most of us in this room, our independence from God is by the fact that what we want is a status apart from Him. And in doing that, our lives tend to look pretty clean. Really pretty. Dressed up and, and clean up good. You know, but and, and we're looking nice. And what we're saying ultimately in our moral, uh, kind of responsible, independent lives is Jesus, I don't really need you. I can do something like own. I got this. And when I mess up, I'll come to you. Maybe. And that's where our brokenness is. Now, other of us, though, we don't fall in. We, we gave up long ago on the notion that I can make myself better. We, we, we try to kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and found out we've had the straps. And we're like, I don't know what to do now, right? And so, um, and what that means is that we don't look to God, we, we don't try and seek independence from God for status, but instead for satisfaction. You think, I have to find satisfaction in life. I have to make my, I have to make things work for me, and God can't be the one that does it, so we go searching for something else. And maybe that means our lives don't look quite like Maybe they're still trying. But the point is, all of us are there. We're independent from God desperately trying to look for something other than him to help us. And so the Bible teaches that both of those things, both the, the moral version of independence and the immoral version of independence, are both sin, equal. And are both a sign that we're alienated from God and while we're together. Because independent from God, though it sounds very benign, is actually a relational betrayal. And if that is something that we are by nature, then what we need is not to get new rules. What we need is nature. Right? And the Bible speaks about that in terms of this thing called new birth. And so what John argues is that belief, faith in Jesus Christ, is contingent on new birth. That your faith in Christ actually comes from your new birth, not vice versa. What does that mean? Well, saying that Jesus is the Christ means believing that he is the long way into the God's promise that he directly is the one who is reconciled to himself. Let's go that. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is not saying that Jesus has provided a means for me to do or a path for me to follow to get myself back to God. It is not believing that Jesus has come to give you rules that if you follow, can reconcile you to God. Believing that Jesus is the Christ the Bible is to understand Jesus as the rescue plan. That he is the one who reconciles you, not the one who tells you how to be reconciled. Okay? The argument 
primary Christianity is that Jesus is the rescuer, not that you, not that you can rescue yourself. Now, the idea that there's a path that you can follow, so that's, that's very religious. That's a great uh, religious argument. It's just not Christian. Okay? And so we need to be clear about that. Christianity is about trusting in what Jesus has done, not what we can do. And thus, we return to dependence on God. But let me be clear. John is saying that this belief, this understanding of who Jesus is, is contingent on your birth. And some of us were taught the exact opposite, right? Then you believe, and once you believe, then you're born again. So that's not what sin is. In fact, that's not what Jesus said when he first talks about it. He said, you and I, when we are left to ourselves, are lost. Right? And so when did Jesus first talk about this? Well, he went to go visit the beginning of uh, in John chapter 3, uh, not first John, but the Gospel of John chapter 3. Uh, well, actually, maybe he was going to visit him in front of John and I, and he was one hand after him. And he goes into Jesus and he says, oh, You're great, man. I, I've heard that you're from God, and God is great teaching, and Jesus kind of cuts you all stuff. He's like, Look, you need to be born again. He was like, Wow. I got nothing. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Does that mean I got a, like, Enter a second time into the womb? Like, what is that? And, and, and so Jesus says, no, no, you're, you're the, the teacher of religious truth here. You're the, you're the religious teacher, but you don't get this. Unless you're born again, you can't see it. That is the kingdom of God. Understand it or enter it. In other words, something has to come first that you're not you and I are not ourselves in law. We want nothing to do with you. But God comes and makes us new so that we can believe. And that is the clear argument of John here. Okay? So the logic then continues. That if you love the one who caused you to be born again, then you'll love everyone else who is in the same way. We'll get to more of that in a second, but basically the good way is you love the Father, you'll love the family. Okay? If you love the Father, you'll love the family. There's more on that side. He goes on, let's keep reading. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God, and we love God and keep his commandments. But this is the love of God that we need to do. Commandments. Now, if you think about that. First thing, you'll notice a couple of times where he says keep right there. Right? Well, actually, this says obey, and then it says keep. That's great. So the word obey that's translated in verse 2 is actually the word to do. We do his commands. It's an active thing. There's an activity involved in actually following after God. In other words, um, uh, Doing the commandments of God doesn't just mean not doing something, it means actively doing something. And then it also means uh, keeping his commandment, which, which is more of a stance, a posture. One is active, one is a little more positional, okay? So just understand that as we keep going. The second thing is that this tends to unite what we want to divide, doesn't it? Because we want to take love of God and love of others, and we go, they go like this. I love God, I can't stand y'all. Like, it's like one of those two things. We don't want to put them together, but John puts them together. And we actually love others by love God and keeping his commandments. But that's like a question, doesn't it? Which commandments? Some of you are like, you know, Bible nerds, you know, that in the Old Testament there's 613 of those things. So which ones are you talking about? Like all of them? All 613? Well, yes and no. Okay, yes and no. Um, here's, this takes a lot more uh, time than we have. We don't have a time to go into a treatment on the law or God's commands. Let me just say this. John is talking about what theologians tend to call the moral law, the Ten Commandments. 
Okay? Thank you. Big 10, right? God's top 10 list. You can find the Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Those are the things that we all think are super important and none of us can name one. Right? Like what's number seven? Anybody that asks. What's number seven? You know, like, it's, that, that, that's, that's the reality. We, we, don't even, we, don't, we don't know. We think they're important. Here, let me break them down, okay? Here's what's true of these commands. The first four deal with our relationship to God, right? Number one and four deal with our relationship to God. The last six deal with our interactions with others. And what this means is that to do God's commands, to heed God's commands, is both to have proper worship, that's one and four, love of God, and proper, a proper ethic. Five and ten, by right? love of others. Jesus said this when he said that the, the, the summary of the entire law, all 613, to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So does it mean to be all 613? Well, yes. And no. Right? That's not what he's talking about. So let me continue the lot. The one who believes is the born of God. The one who loves the God who gave him new birth will also love the rest of those given new birth. And the way to love those people is to love God and do what he says. Since God commanded us to love. Now, that's a lot of talking. Like, we've got to bring some to it. Okay? There are these two things, these two and a half verses speak to that you did. The first one is more theological. I'm about to flesh out what I already said a second ago. That our belief is contingent on our birth. Our belief is keeping me on birth. In other words, God has got to move in our hearts first for us to have faith in Christ. And I know that if you aren't a Christian, that sounds rather nihilistic or even, uh, even just offensive. And if you are a Christian, you've heard the exact opposite. Okay? So here's, here's where we need to go. If John is the only one who says this, then we, then we go, uh, maybe, maybe he's a little confused, or maybe this is, we're confused on understanding this. Okay? So um, one of the ways that you interpret the Bible that's really important for us to get is that you take what is super clear in the Bible said a bunch of times, and you interpret what isn't clear by those things, right? So let Scripture interpret Scripture. So we take, we, you know, because uh, if you've read the Bible, you know that not everything is clear the same way, right? If that's the first time you're hearing this, you need some comfort. If you name Peter, who's an apostle, he wrote a few letters, he wrote a couple letters in the New Testament, and one of them said that guy Paul, some of this stuff is hard to understand. If, if it's hard to understand for Peter, y'all, you and I get a pass. I'm like, good. I, I didn't understand that kind of stuff either. So, but that's it. So we, we need to interpret what is clear or what is unclear by what is clear. But on this one, John is not the only one who says this. John is not the only one who says that belief is contingent on birth. In fact, Paul says it too. When he says that you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins, but if God has to make us alive. God comes in and makes us alive, and then we come to him. He says that it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and not even that faith is of yourself. That's the gift of God. Jesus said it too. Like, whoa, wait a minute. John Paul and Jesus, yes. Jesus said it too. He's talking to the Pharisees, again, these religious teachers, and they're giving them an argument. He an argument. Like, it's a crazy exchange. Jesus is finally like, you don't believe what I say because you're not my sheep. If you were my sheep, you would believe what I said. Not if you believe what I say, you become my sheep. But if you were my sheep, you believe what I said. 
Here's why it doesn't matter. Because we have overcome 
the world. You see that? Those born of God are from the world. And so if you've been here in this series, you might not be saying when John says world, he doesn't mean kind of world in general, he means the world as it is in rebellion against God. Okay? What he is pointing to is that new birth, listen to me, new birth does not just enable faith, it enables obedience. And this is because Jesus on the cross, like, it wasn't just to, get us, to deliver us from the penalty of sin, but also to deliver us from the power. The Bible tells us that before, like, by nature, we are enslaved to that independence. We don't have a choice. We do only what we were enslaved to do. But the work of Jesus is to make us new so that we can deliver not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power. And then one day soon, when Christ returns, he delivered him from his presence. But here he's talking about the power. We've overcome the world. And that is because our problem isn't so much what we do as it is who we are. We're independent of God by nature. Remember that? The, the reason for that is that you and I were convinced of a lot that God doesn't love us, he's not after our good, that he's trying to hold us back. And so what the work of God does is it takes that lie and it turns it on its head. It exposes it for what it is. So we're taken out of that in our perception and taken back into uh, what we were meant to be. So the second, the first is our position. The second is the character of God's command. Here's what I mean. God's commands are not oppressive and stifling to love. Now, they are rather stifling to our soul. They are rather oppressive uh, to our desire for our fun. But they are not to love. So let me make that a difference. If you and I are being honest, most of the things that we struggle with when it comes to the same command is that what they do is they restrict us from doing what we want. Right? But if we're honest, what we want generally is not to love other people. What we want generally is to do what we want to get for ourselves. So what do I mean? Um, we hate the fact that God designed sexuality to be practiced and expressed only within marriage between a man and a woman uh, because that limits our sexual expression. Not because it keeps us from loving, because it keeps me from getting what I want. Right? We hate that God designed us for truth because that keeps us from exploiting other individuals or from cheating on our taxes, not because of lying with every woman. God's commands are not burdensome for us as we seek to love others. Why do we stop going to our thoughts? And that brings us to victory and belief. Listen to this. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We have overcome the world with one of the things that exists on God. Right? I'm going to break it down. Everywhere where you see overcome and victory, you need to know that both of those are the same word. It just doesn't sound right when we try and translate them all the same. Okay, so what he's talking about is stacking up these words in the original where we get the word Nike from. Really doesn't mean anything. So just back off that. But the point is that all of them mean victory. They all mean overcome. They are, they're all, this is stacking these words on top of each other in these two verses. So here's why. Because the Bible presents the world not as neutral towards them, but in rebellion. It presents us. Some of you here this morning are like, I'm not a Christian, but I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not in rebellion against 
God, I was not even sure that this would exist. Here we go. So, for the sake of argument, uh, I'm sure that no one here is in this position. Let's pretend that you are not very comfortable with our current political situation. Right? And, and so instead of, of kind of whatever you would normally think, you go, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I accept this president, and so therefore I'm not going to listen to anything that the administration or the government says, and I'm going to do what I want because I'm not sure I acknowledge his presidency. You know what we call it? Rebellion. Now you may call it indifference. I just don't like the president. Okay. It's rebellion. The same thing is true of God. This is what it is. Uh, but here's the deal. Our nature, apart from God, is not indifferent. It is rebellion. But one of the less highlighted aspects of the cross of Jesus and the work that Jesus did on that cross, and I mean uh, less highlighted in our tradition, is the fact that Paul says that Jesus, on the cross, put all the forces that were against God in the field. He put them down. He detruthed the world. Right? He, he, took, he defeated all of them. And so Paul says, in fact, he triumphed over these things by the cross. Jesus defeated our rebellion by bearing it and answering for it. And, and the fact that you and I actually have faith is evidence of that victory. Because we work in rebellion, which means that faith itself is the victory. Now, let me give you a prayer. If some of you have heard about the Victorious Christian life, right? Some of you have been in churches and places where you talk about the Victorious Christian life, and the way you get there is by having enough faith. I get enough faith and I'll get the victory. That is not what John is saying. John is saying that faith itself is the victory. That that is how, the fact that you have faith is, is evidence of the fact that Jesus has reached in to a rebellious kingdom and he has grabbed you out of it and pulled you into his own. Faith is the victory. And then John brings back to where we started. The one who has victory in the world will overcome the world. And that is the one who has faith in Jesus. So let me pull this thing a lot and one more part of our time. The one who has been born of God has faith in Jesus. The world is world. That faith in Jesus that has us love the Father and love the family. We love the family. Of God by loving God and doing what He says. But what He says to love the family isn't burdensome because we have overcome the rebellion of the world and our hearts to our faith in Jesus, which came about because we've been born of God. You see how that happens? So let me put it into um, two little phrases that I hope will help us and help us this morning as we go. Okay? Here's the first one. Your position provides the power for your performance. Say that again. Your position provides the power for your performance. John's whole point here is that our faith in Christ, our union with Him, is the power of our obedience. Let me say this again because I cannot say it enough. You and I are not made for independence. Half the reason, listen to me. Half the reason some of us can't seem to shake that persistent pattern of sin in our lives if we've been a Christian for any amount of time is because we bought into the lie that as we mature as Christians, we should need God less and less. That we will actually be able to be independent of Him the more we 
exact opposite. Christian maturity is about learning more and more how we need to be dependent on him all the time. Christian maturity is going, I don't have the power, I don't have the ability, I can't do this on my own. I need Christ. I need my faith in Christ and the, the power for my performance. Your position provides the power for your performance. Gospel change happens. I know this is uh, not our normal. Gospel change happens when you and I accept our needs instead of responding. You know what you're doing, right? I mean, my needs is probably different than your needs. Not better, not worse. It's different. Why? Because God created me with that means so that He can meet with me. There. But you and I, we hate it. We think God hates it. And God is sitting there thinking, if this dude could just get that meanness under control, he could be pleasing to him. No, no, no. God created you with the meanness so that he can meet with you there. Stop despising it. Become friends with it. And realize that is the area that God is and then repent of the ways that you've been trying to fix yourself and let God work in Jesus to heal us. For example, and I know this does not apply to anyone in the room. Let's say you are controlled food. Not something that would ever happen to a bunch of type A people, but I'm looking at right now, right? No control fruits in the, in the crowd. You cannot deal with your control issues by controlling them. Right? You cannot get control of your control issues. You are reinforcing the problem. Instead, you realize, why do I have control issues? Probably because you're afraid you're not going to be taking control. Why else do you want to control the world? It's dangerous. Realize that, that the reason why you struggle with that is probably because of the way you were made. And God's intention to meet you in the midst of your fear that the world is out of control. Say, I know, but I'm bigger than that. Don't you see what I did for you? You see how that works? Instead of trying to control your control issues, you return to the gospel, you return to see that Jesus is enough. He meets with you in the midst of you. Repent of the ways you try to keep yourself safe instead open yourself to the care of God. Your position is the power of your performance. But the reverse is also true. If that if that individual is speaking, you'd be like, I don't know, I'm not trying to perform anymore. And here's the other side of the world. Your performance does not have the power to change Your performance does not have the power to change the position. Did you see that what John said? Hang on. The entire discussion started with the work of God. And the entire discussion ended with the work of God. It all began with those who have been born of God believe in Christ, and it ended with those who are believing in Christ and been born of God. Those who have overcome the world have been born of God. It ended in bookended with the same concepts. The one who has the victory is the one who has faith in Jesus, but the one who has faith in Jesus is the one of God. Remember that these tests that John is giving us throughout the entire letter. 
are not here so that we can get scared and clean up our act. They are here to drive us back to Christ. Your performance does not have the power to change your condition one way or the other. If you're, if you're like, God can never accept me because of everything I've done, your performance cannot change your position. If you try to make it better, it doesn't change anything. And if you've done really well in your life, you're like, God loves you because I'm awesome. Can I tell you this? Your performance cannot change your position. It doesn't have the power to do that. Only God can. So here's what this does. It levels the ground at the foot of the cross. Some of us are logical. Some of us don't. And it takes that ground and says that there is no uneven space at the foot of the cross. We are all standing on level ground, all equally in the same place, which means we all need the exact same solution. If you are a Christian and you see yourself growing in sanctification this morning, congratulations. That is not because of you. That means, as you see that, as you see that it's not because of you, you can have compassion on those who are struggling. Because you know you are not wrong because you're awesome but because of Jesus. And frankly, if you are struggling here this morning, it's not just struggling in high degree, whether that's a doubt or a sin, the struggle cannot change your place with the Lord. You're like, but you don't know what I've done. You're right, but I know what Jesus did. And he's way better and way more powerful than me. And that's what I want you to see. Jesus is enough. His work has always been more powerful than yours. It was more powerful than yours than you thought it would be good. It was more powerful than yours than you thought it would be good. John explains in this passage, in this season, in the New Testament, that your position provides the power to your performance. And it is the performance that cannot have the power to your performance. God, we are unique to the gospel. Whether that is because we think ourselves great or we think ourselves not, we are unique to the gospel. It's in the gospel, Lord, you tell us that we are delighted in because you have delighted in us. We are delightful because you have delighted in us. That we are lovely because you have loved us. That we are, we are worthy because you have thought not because we have made ourselves. And so we pray that you would convince us of that, and that as we see that, that that, that position would become power for us to, to love others, to love you, to love others. We're not good at it. We're not good at loving. We're certainly not good at it. So we have to invite the position of God to the cross to once again see what we need. Send us in the world to see that.